It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, including my own. Now, despite the occasion, what I've got lined up here today is not exactly a Mother's Day show. In fact, it's a father-daughter story. I'll be talking to the filmmaker and teacher Nora Bateson. She's made a new documentary about the work of her father, the late philosopher and social scientist Gregory Bateson. It's called An Ecology of Mind, after one of his most famous books, Steps to an Ecology of Mind. And it'll be screening at the Santa Cruz Film Festival this week. We'll hear about it in the first half of our show today. And then in the second half, three plays, 30 characters, one actress. I'll talk to Rivera Sun Cook about her new one-woman dramatic trilogy, A Star Called Love, The Freedom Stories of Lala. It just opened in Santa Cruz and runs through May. I'll speak to Rivera and the play's director, Robin Aronson, about that mysterious process by which stories come to us and actors channel their characters. So stick around. That's all coming up. And now on to part one of today's show, a conversation about the late Gregory Bateson. Bateson taught at UC Santa Cruz in the 1970s and died in 1980. He was one of those big thinkers who are almost impossible to classify. He started out as a biologist and then became an anthropologist, working with his first wife and fellow anthropologist Margaret Mead in the South Pacific. Later, he became one of the founders of what's sometimes called cybernetics or systems theory. For him, that meant looking at complex phenomena like human society or the mind or ecosystems, not as a bunch of distinct components operating on their own, but as a web of relationships. Gregory Bateson wanted nothing less than to change the very way that we think. He wanted us to focus less on things themselves and more on the connections between things. His work was widely read and very influential. And one of the people he influenced most was his daughter, Nora. Her new documentary celebrates her father's philosophy, which she says provides a way of rethinking all kinds of problems in science, in psychology, and the environment. It's an approach to, to dealing with the question we're all facing right now, which is, which is how do we get out of the destructive patterns and loops that we live within, both in, you know, within our, the communication in our families and any sort of addictive habits, as well as our social and cultural patterns, economic patterns that are destructive to our environment. In in Gregory's work, all of these things come together so that problems of our world really come together into one issue, which is at the level of how we see the world and what we do in it. So that's a personal issue, an anthropological issue, a biological question, political, psychological, technological. All of these things come together to the question of what are we seeing and how are we behaving? How does this approach that you're talking about, how does it differ from, from what we normally do when we think about these problems? Normally, we think about the problems 
And I think that that pretty much sums it up. This is an invitation to think about the way that we think about the problems so that we don't, out of force of habit, begin to recreate the problem from thinking in the same kind of way. Mm. You know, I have a, a an example, perhaps, uh, of exactly that kind of rethinking from your film. It's a clip of your half-sister, Mary Catherine Bateson, talking. She's mm-hmm. the daughter of uh, your dad, Gregory, and his first wife, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist. Let's just play that clip. I once spent hundreds of hours looking at a film of a family therapy session. There was a mother and a father and the child who was the identified patient and a psychotherapist. And that child was a bizarre behavior, disruptive, just... And I thought, oh, that child is making his parents miserable. What an awful thing. And then after I'd watched it another hundred times, I thought, you know... It's that mother that's making the child behave that way. Another hundred times, and I thought, and that father's sitting there, you think he's not doing anything. He's the one that's causing all the trouble. And then eventually I thought, you know, I think it might be the psychotherapist. (laughs) The point being that the pathology was not in the child, or the mother, or the father, or the therapist. It was in the system was in the relation, the pattern of relationship between them. And I was trying to attach it to an individual, which is the way we are trained to think about causation. So, so is that a good example of what you're talking about when you say revisiting the way we think about the problem? That is a really good example of it. Um, and the, the redirection there is toward focusing not on the items or the people or the problems as sort of nodes, you know, but mm-hmm. focusing on the interrelationships and the dynamics of the interrelationships between elements, participants in the living system. And trying to focus that perspective requires a kind of muscle. It, it takes practice. And Gregory was good at it. Well, why don't we listen to Gregory Bateson himself, your father, um, talking about this perspective that I guess you could say is, at its heart, anti-reductionist. I mean, he's very much against partitioning knowledge, separating processes into one actor or another, into one uh, part or another, but rather at looking at the whole, rather at looking at interactions and relationships. So here he is talking about that. What happens is that when you breach a holistic structure and you say, or do it without saying it, but you say, uh, I am only going to attend to this end of the relationship. I am going to study the role of the doctor, R-O-L-E. Now, a role is, is a half-assed relationship, you know. It's one end of a relationship. And you cannot study one end of a relationship and make any sense. What you will make is disaster. Nora, since you've taken this so much to heart, this this way of approaching the world that your father advocated, can you tell me the, the last time you applied this in your own life? I apply it everywhere. Uh, it's not. It's it's an academic approach, and it certainly 
is part of my research and my work, but it's also inherent in the way that I would make breakfast or be with my children. Um, wow. Well, I'm, I, I, here's what I'm struggling for right now. I've watched your film. I've, mm-hmm. I've heard the segments of your father talking and people talking about him. It's, it's interesting. It's stimulating. It's obviously ambitious, uh, but it's very abstract. I'd just love to hear someone say, here it is applied to a situation in the real world, and here's the payoff. Here's what it did for me to rethink this along the lines that Gregory Bateson would have supported. All right. So I have uh, two kids and teenagers. It's great to have teenagers. Forget everything anybody ever told you about how hard it is to have teenagers. They're great. Um, And my daughter, Sara, when she had just barely turned 15, had a teenage girl's room with clothes all over the floor and dishes and, you know, the kind of mess that a teenage girl can create in their room. And so, as her mother, I went in and I embarked on the script. We all know the script, and it goes like this. My God, this room is a disaster. This is pathological. How do you live like this? How can you even think in this room? Look at this. I buy you beautiful clothes, and here they are on the floor, and look at that. That's my blouse that you borrowed and promised you would take care of, right? We all know this script. And my daughter turned to me in completion of this script, and she said, who are you to tell me how I live my life? You're not exactly perfect yourself. So the the teleprompter in my head brought up the line, which is, I do have the right to tell you how to live as long as you live in my house, right? That's what you say. Mm -hmm. And you have no business speaking to me with that level of disrespect, young lady, right? (laughs) And I looked at her and I saw this, this fiery spirit and I thought, you know, she's going to need that spirit and that, that ability to take on the world more than she needs a clean room. And I just, I smiled, I looked at her and I said, you know, don't let anybody tell you how to live your life, not even me. And I have to tell you that in that moment, we claimed another level of communication and of mutual respect, of advocacy for each other, um, and it, it, it completely defined what came after that. Well, what came after? I mean, some people are going to say, okay, yeah, there's an easy solution. Just roll over and give up. Uh, let your teenage daughter have her way. But, but, but did you find some reciprocity developed out of this? What happened was, her, the, 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 there's this great quote, you know, this um, graffiti artist named Banksy? Yeah. Banksy's got this great quote where he says, um, people don't use their initiative because no one ever told them to. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so in that, in that spirit, The issue was no longer about her cleaning her room. The issue was about her deciding how to live her life. So we went up a level, which in in the Gregory world is is sort of meta. That would be the meta level. And so her room became the non-issue. 
So I don't know. Is that a good example? Well, you want well, another one? Well, so I wanted to ask in a, a kind of hard-headed way, what mm-hmm. was the benefit of all of this? You know, maybe this is an example of a kind of thinking that your father wouldn't have approved of, but what is, <laughs> what's in it for you? It sounds like what, what was in it for you uh, was you managed to uh, defuse an unpleasant and intense situation, uh, and the relationship between you and your daughter improved as a result. Well, you could frame it like that. Um, I would frame it slightly differently and say what we claimed was the ability to change our minds to redirect our communication, and to choose mutual respect over being right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And also to opt out of the role of being in a dominant or submissive uh, relationship to each other. And you feel like it was mutual, that your daughter um, responded in a way that you know, it was good for you. It wasn't just good for her. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, you do some talking in this film. There are, there are bits of you speaking to the camera about your father's thinking. And there was one phrase, I think, that sums up maybe the example you just gave to me. You said, the thing was never the thing. The map was not the territory. And whatever it was could be turned slightly, seemingly infinitely, like a Rubik's Cube, only one in which there might be several right answers. Which leads me to say, for those people who think, well, this is kind of fuzzy stuff, you know, and and maybe a little wishy-washy, I assume there are wrong answers also? I mean, there is a distinction between a good answer and a bad one? Or does anything go in this model? There's certainly a relationship between good answers and bad ones. How about that? Um, I think the the benefit and where it isn't fuzzy at all is that in this quest for understanding the systems that we live within and whether they're in our families or our societies or biological systems and the context as a whole, that what is critical is how do we get to wisdom? How do we get to the point where we might do less damage to each other? And that process, I think, uh, it's not fuzzy at all. But what that means is that wisdom is really not a destination. It's something that is in an infinite um, activity of looking from different directions and expanding the context of whatever it is. To understand something deeply is to understand it from many different perspectives, from different angles. And whether that is your teenage daughter's thinking about her room or <laughs> or the development of algae in a pond. Hey, let's let's jump from interpersonal relationships okay. uh, uh, to biology. Your father's philosophy was meant to apply to a wide variety of disciplines, including ecology and uh, and biology. How does this approach yield benefits in the sciences? Well, first of all, there's there's a term that is used in academia quite a bit now called silos. Um, and the term silos refers to the fact that, that we have a, a biology department that's separate from a philosophy department. In making those separations, there are some very important and vital uh, interrelationships that are lost. Um, the context 
of whatever it is that is being studied, whether it's the behavior of an otter or, like I said, the development of algae in a tide pool. Um, when things are taken out of context, they they lose an element of the non-trivial. Their interrelationships on the context of the way that things function is what gives them their integrity. So you might ask the question, and a, a good friend of mine did. He said, well, you know, the reason your dad's work is important is because just ask the question, what would happen if a university was asked to design a jungle? that what you would get would be a reptile department and a water department and an insect department. And what's missing is this very deep level of integration and the dynamics of that integration. In, I think, at least one of the uh, segments uh, of your father speaking that are included in this movie, he does allow that this classic approach of focusing on one part of the system or another part of a system is convenient. And uh, I, I think that we do learn a lot by focusing, and we can get lost in complexity if we don't focus. Um, would you say, you know, it's okay to be reductionistic in order to solve some problems or in order to begin to start to understand some systems, but it's not enough to be reductionistic? I think that's really fair. Um, the way that I sometimes like to phrase that is to say that it's, you know, when you look at our scientific instrumentation even, everything is about zooming in. And that is very useful. But then there's the process of zooming back out. And the idea of putting whatever it is that we're studying back into their environment. And I think that, that both of those are necessary. This whole line of thinking, you know, that sometimes goes under the overused uh, heading of holism or holistic thinking, was obviously really, really popular in the 60s and 70s. Do, do you think uh, things have changed, that people have abandoned some of that approach in, in the succeeding decades? Well, the, the whole culture sort of took a, a turn um, to the right and, and focused in, in different kinds of ways than maybe got started in the 60s. Um, in some ways, I think that there was a lot of really interesting and important information that was brought to light during that time period that we may be only just now ready to harvest and to dig into in a different way. Um, you know, I, I think listeners probably have picked up the fact that I, I'm struggling a bit in this interview uh, to distinguish um, some of your father's thinking from what might sound like psychobabble to some people. Um, if you get too abstract, it can begin to sound just like sort of comforting and incredibly vague notions. But tell me if you think this is a, a good example of his way of thinking applied to a very concrete problem. And this is the old dichotomy, the old uh, bugaboo about nature versus nurture, uh, whether characteristics are coded for in the genes or whether they're determined by the environment. And, you know, when I talk to, to, to scientists these days, I hear them say, it's neither. It is an interaction. Genes interacting with the environment is what produces the effect we see. And it really is unproductive to try to pin the outcome on either the genes in isolation or the environment in isolation. That's just a nonproductive approach. Would, uh, would your father, Gregory Bateson, have approved of that? I think so. I think that's a, a really good way of looking at it. 
I think any time you get to a, a, a fork in the road where there is the temptation to pinpoint any kind of causation on one thing or another and not on at least three things, <laughs> <laughs> it just becomes, as you said, unproductive. There's a, there's a classic example. I can't remember the philosopher who put it this way, but when approaching what he thought was the um, unproductive distinction between nature and nurture, he'd say, uh, when you put a, a nail in water and it rusts, is the rust coming from the iron or is it coming from the oxygen? Well, it's oxidation. It's iron plus oxygen, and that's the only useful way to look at it. So it's an interaction. It's it's neither the nail nor the oxygen. <laughs> it's both. That's right. It's the relationship between them. Yes. And and that's that's the key right there. Nora, at the very beginning of the film, and then again at the end, uh, you have a little bit of uh, audio tape, a recording of you conversing with your father. Let's hear some of that. Okay, now I want to make this big jump, which is to the question of how do you think? Me? At all. How is thinking done? By your brain in your head. Maybe the part that does it, but that isn't how. So that's you talking to your father, Gregory Bateson. Um, you, you were how old when that was taped? I was 12 when he died, and he was 76. So when that recording was made, I think I was 11, and that would have made him 75. Listening to that tape, it's, it's striking the age difference. He was as, as old relative to you as a lot of people's grandparents are. And then you said he, he, he died when you were 12, so you only had a short time with him. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your relationship with him? Well, like you said, uh, I was young when he died. And we had a, a very short time together, but the time that we had, we knew was precious. And um, people around us knew that it was precious also. So my mother went out of her way to make extra time for us to go camping together or to, to do what we needed to do to have the time we needed to have. And I also, um, when I was in fourth grade, I decided I didn't want to go to school anymore. And Gregory used to stand at the bus stop when he would send me to school and my mother would tell these stories that he would just weep watching me go to school and he would say, they're going to ruin her mind. <laughs> and so there was, there was limited time for us to spend together and obviously there were things that he really wanted to teach me. Um, and more than anything, it wasn't knowledge that he was trying to download. It was a way of looking at the world that would then inform a different kind of, of quest, of pursuit. Essentially, that's what the film is. is, is it's a framework for a different kind of pursuit. Did you, from the moment he taught you these ideas or this style of thinking, did you absorb them and begin to practice them? Or did you at some point later in your life rediscover them and embrace them the way you seem to have? I mean, you seem to have really taken up the the cause or the torch, you know, of your father's uh, <laughs> uh, work. Um, was that always there, or, or, or is that something you've come to later? 
You know, that's an impossible question because, you know, the answer is both. Uh-huh. And, and probably if you ask me in 10 years, I'll tell you something else. Um, because when I went, when I started working on this film, I had done everything in my power as, as a youth to rebel against his legacy. So I didn't study anthropology and I didn't study psychology and I did everything I could to be a black sheep. And <laughs> with the great irony was that I, I got my degrees at Santa Cruz in, in filmmaking and Southeast Asian studies, which I, you know, I thought I was rebelling. I was so sure of it. And then, you know, at some point it occurred to me, oh, actually, what did he do? He went to Southeast Asia and made ethnographic films, and so yeah, it was early in his I career had, as an anthropologist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so somehow I had walked right into the stream, like any good salmon, and and gone right up to where I'd come from, and then went on to start developing uh, curriculum, all of which was systems based, without any uh, real conscious recognition that I was following in his footsteps at all or that I was that this material was generating out of some source. And then when I started working on this film, all of these ideas that I was so sure were my ideas were right there in black and white or on the screen and I thought, ah, oh, darn. I was so sure I had thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did so many things. It'd be hard to steer clear of his legacy entirely. It'd be very difficult. <laughs> So, so yes, it was there all along, and yes, it was a a, a journey of discovery. It was both, uh-huh. and um, continues to be both. The, but this moment when you realize, oh my God, I am recapitulating in some ways my father's discoveries. Maybe um, were you chagrined or were you excited? Well, what can you think? You know, it's <laughs> got to be a little of both. Um, so, yeah, I would say both. Uh, you know, and and I'm still figuring out how to be with that. Uh-huh. that you know, I, somehow I'm putting myself in the position of being a spokesperson or a translator or a something like that of his work, and um, that's a really strange position to be in because he's not around to defend himself. <laughs> right. And um, and it's you know it just in terms of not to get too personal here, but in terms of my own identity, it's a slippery slope. So so I have had to really be careful with that and be very clear that um, you know as he said, the point of the probe is in the heart of the explorer, and in this case, I am the explorer. So the Gregory that you get in this movie is the Gregory that I have to give you. Mm. So uh, that's sort of where I've been working and figuring out, you know, where it goes for me from here in making the sequel. So making uh, the sequel, making the sequel, yeah. Oh, so that's that's the next movie. Okay. Well, the next one is is first we got to get this one out. So we'll not talk about the next one, yeah. Yeah, we'll save that for another day. Well, well, thanks, Nora. Thank you. It's been really good to talk to you. Nora Bateson's documentary about her father, Gregory Bateson, is called An Ecology of Mind. It'll be showing at the Santa Cruz Film Festival next Saturday, May 14th, at 4.30 p.m. 
at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz. The Santa Cruz Film Festival is now underway, and you can get information on events and showtimes at santacruzfilmfestival.org. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Next, we're going to hear about another event taking place currently in Santa Cruz. It's a trilogy of plays entitled A Star Called Love, The Freedom Stories of Lala. It's by the dancer and actress Rivera Sun Cook, and it's a kind of modern-day folktale about an African-American girl named Lala growing up in an all-black town in 1890s Kansas. Rivera plays not only the lead role of Lala, but all the characters, all 30 of them, black, white, Chinese, and Mexican. I spoke to Rivera and the play's director, Robin Aronson, and uh, it gave me a chance to ask about something that's fascinated me for a long time. That's the way that stories and characters enter the heads of actors and authors as if the artist were just a vessel for the story. And that's exactly what Rivera says happened to her. She says she'd actually decided to give up performing unless a story came to her that absolutely had to be told. And then one did. The first person who came was Lala as her 10-year-old self and this Chinese man riding, I say he's riding the wind because that's an old Taoist reference to the Chinese sages who when they attain a certain level of understanding, they're said to be able to ride the wind, which is, depending on the folktale, it's both a literal capability that they cultivate to actually ride on the wind, but it's also like an inner energetic alchemical sort of an experience. Um, and I just had the image of this Chinese man blowing in on the dust storm and Lala looking out the door and having no idea about these references, just saying, he's riding the wind, and him being a cowboy-esque character and falling into their lives with his stories of all his travels and exotic adventures and Lala's little eyes just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that becoming food for thought for her in a very isolated 1890s town. But this would be something totally foreign to their whole culture. And what about the character of Lala, who starts out at what age in, in this set of stories? She's 10 in the beginning. And is that how she arrived for you in your imagination as, as a 10-year-old? Um, she came beyond any of her ages um, because she came as a real spiritual force. And so Lala's spirit just came to me and said, this is a story your people need to hear. And here's how it goes. So it was a voice in your head? It was. Very rhythmical, very specific tone of character voice. Um, she came with her language in full force. <sighs> had you had voices in your head before? And I'm not trying to be a psychologist <laughs> here. <laughs> but, but, but the voices of characters, had that happened to you before? I would say yes, uh, from very young age age because when you make an imaginary story in your head all uh, many of us have imaginary friends or we pretend we're luke skywalker and princess leia you imagine the voices of all the other people around you whether they're there or not and also when you tell a story to yourself you're hearing the story internally and that's a process that i always remember doing and i think a lot of us remember doing the strength and the specificity of the voices grows as you tune into them. Just as if I just ran into you the other day, Robert, and 
I pass you on the street and I hear your voice once. And then I see you again. I say, oh, hey, you're kind of a great person. And we start talking. I hear your voice stronger. And then you become my new best friend and I hear your voice all the time. And that's kind of what listening for a character is like. Mm. It's just the same as meeting a new friend. Mm. Well, I think I, I, I'm pretty sure we all imagine dialogues in our head with people we know or have known. But when a character arrives who you never met in real life and begins expressing herself mm -hmm. in a very particular way, mm -hmm. and she's from a place that's nothing like where you grew up, nothing like where you've ever been, the mm -hmm. 1890s, an all-black town in Kansas, that's a little mysterious to me, mm. how that could happen and how this voice could be someone who really doesn't feel like you. It's not you talking to yourself. Mm. It is a bit of a mystery. I mean, there's all sorts of mysteries in everybody's lives, things that we know about or intuit or have a sense of that don't have any background in this lifetime. If you believe in other lifetimes, that's a spiritual explanation for it. If you believe in that we have all sorts of like belief systems about where that might come from. But yeah. when you try to put your finger on it, it's always a mystery. <laughs> um how did this character then, Lala, a, a black woman uh, in the late 19th century, develop for you? Started with, you're saying, just a voice, a, mm -hmm. certain, a certain kind of cadence to her voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lala came to me and she said, Growed up in a rackleshack house, by dry creek bed, on the outermost edge of a tumbleweed town called Lovely. And she just dis started describing her whole world with these words that were unlike anybody else's. Um, her chitter-chatter winders rattling and the grit-bit sky darkening. Um, her way of talking is unique to Lala. I can't say African-Americans talk like that. I can't say that people in 1890s talk like that. Um, she's an individual. And you don't talk like that. I sure don't. You know anybody who talks like that? Just Lala. <laughs> That's what Mama Lou says. That's my Lala. Never seen a child for turning words like my Lala. Um, Robin, I want to get you in this conversation. Um, you're a theater director. Were you ever an actress yourself? Yes. In fact, I acted this morning. <laughs> On stage? Yes, I did. For hundreds of people. So you know what it's like to play a character. Do you have the same experience, though, of characters coming to life inside of you that Rivera was just describing? Most of the characters I have played have been written by somebody else. And the times that I have performed my own work, it's been my own personal story. So I haven't tried playing a character that I've created, just myself. But when you play a character that someone's written, does it, does it come to life eventually for you? Oh, yeah. Internally? Mm-hmm. And does this person, I'm going to call her she, since you probably mostly play female characters. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> when she comes to life in your head, and you have this uh, obligation to um, do right by this character in front of a lot of people, you know, over a span of time, maybe a run of even weeks or, or longer if the, the play is going on, what relationship do you have to that person in your daily life? Well, she doesn't come alive in my head. She comes alive on stage in the experience of speaking the words. And my experience is if you play a part over and over again, then it starts becoming more 
you're you're being that person saying those lines and actually believing it. So when you first start rehearsing, you're not believing it quite as much. But then you you can have moments where the belief is absolute, where you're saying the words. For instance, I played Susan B. Anthony in Spirit of America, and just yesterday at the shows in San Francisco, I knew that I was speaking her words. These were her words that she had spoken in court, and I felt like she was there, I was her, I felt what she felt in the moment that she was speaking these words. And, and it, there was also a sense that the words were coming to me, that I, I wasn't, that I was making them up as I went, that, that Susan B. Anthony was discovering the words, even as she was saying them. But that happens on stage. When you walk off stage, you're you, 100% you, and Susan B. Anthony is left behind. That is true. I, I interviewed uh, the novelist uh, Richard Ford a few years ago, and he had spent a long time, uh, as as people who read his novels will know, with one main character in three successive novels. But he told me that when he's done writing about that guy at the end of the day or whatever, he goes back in the box just like Charlie McCarthy, the puppet, went back in his box, <laughs> <You know? laughs> the ventriloquist dummy. And I thought, oh, that's kind of sad. Now, but there are other people who live with their characters, method actors who try to <laughs> try to become the character day in, day out. What about you, Rivera? What about you and Lala and some of the other characters you play in this I was going to uh, say, I think if you try to live day in and day out as 30 characters, you're qualified <laughs> as schizophrenic, um, <laughs> or at least multiple personality disorder. Um, I would say, for me, what happens with the characters is the same as what happens with people in real life. You spend time with people, you learn from them, you grow with them, you change because of your interaction with them. And the characters are no different. Um, there's a few very, very obvious, scientifically measurable things that are different in my life. I speak in a lower register. I used to talk in a higher register, like up in here, because all of my Irish Catholic family upbringing is all like the high Celtic soprano. So I learned that growing up. But Mama Lou is way down in here, and the preacher is even lower. And so my lower register opened up through doing them. And so now my speaking voice has actually equilibrated into a lower tone. My physical body structure has changed a little bit because I've been wearing the bodies of the characters so intensely for the past couple of months. And it's changed my body patterns in the universe as I walk around. And I... Think of this as a beautiful learning process, as if you went to another culture and you lived among the peop amongst the people. You probably pick up a lot of the habits and bring them back to your own benefit, too. You play 30 characters, yes. roughly, in these three plays that you wrote. You wrote them. You perform all the parts. Correct. And in the course of this, you'll play one character talking to another. So you have to jump back and forth between characters, mm -hmm. <laughs> between voices in a second or two, uh, back and forth, all around. Yeah. Now, that would make some people crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's where the, the spirituality comes in and the meditation for me. Um, I read a lot of Buddhism because the Buddhists really examine the concept of a self, what makes our self is there really an identifiable, pinnable thing that is our self at any moment? 
And their answer is no. We're always changing. And because we're always changing and growing, there's nothing fixed or permanent that is inside that changing and growing experience. So on an ultimate level, there is no self that we need to cling to or be attached to or worry about losing or finding or getting rid of or changing or anything. It's an organic experience. So when I play two characters, I simply let go of the conception of staying my Rivera self at all and the conception of staying just one self. But I allow myself, the thing I call myself, to flow between two characters because that's just what's happening. That's what I've trained to do. It's as natural as just sitting here talking to you, claiming that I'm Rivera, talking to Robert. <laughs> now, Rivera, you're playing um, a lot of characters who are African-American, Lala and her family and others, yeah. And and even though uh, theoretically actors and writers and other artists should be able to create any character that they want, there is this societal... I don't want to say taboo, but there's a lot of fear and uh, anxiety about this business of white people playing black people, you know, because of a history of disgusting stereotypes, usually, <laughs> when white people played black people. Absolutely. <laughs> Were you intimidated by that? Did that come to mind when you started thinking about this character and, and imagine yourself playing her on stage? When Lala first came to me, I had no thought about that whatsoever. I think I was very lucky in my upbringing that I was brought up with a culture of just loving people, just loving them. And so when Lala came to me, it didn't even occur to me that we did have, there was a history in the United States of racial stereotyping and white people portraying black people very derogatorily. Um, so it didn't occur to me. I just said, here's my new best friend. She's telling me her story, and she wants me to tell that story to everybody else. And it wasn't until I started doing the readings that people started asking me the question, are you sure it's okay for you to get up on stage and be all these black people? And then I thought, oh, is it okay? And I had to sit down and really think about it and talk about it with my partner a long time and ask lots of people questions. And it turned into a big, like, maelstrom of, of tension and thought and discussion. And finally, I just sat down and asked Lala and Mama Lou. You got to always ask Mama Lou everything. And Lala said, don't you ever let anyone stop you from doing something because of your skin color. And that pretty much just tabled that question right there. Have you performed it in front of audiences that aren't just white, that are African-American, Mexican, Chinese at all? And what's been the response? I've only performed the shows in Santa Cruz, so it does limit our um, ethnic diversity here. Although there have been people of all ethnicities at the shows so far, um, just limited numbers because of our population uh, background. But I would say the the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, in fact, in the early readings, the first African-American woman who came and heard it, I was very nervous, honestly. <laughs> the person who came and heard it, I, 
she said how much it moved her and how she heard the voices of her relatives in the story and her mother was a sharecropper and she was just so excited that the project was happening and I confess that I was a little nervous at that point to portray African Americans and she just looked me dead in the eyes and said you have the spirit of authenticity and you gotta wear that like a blessing and from that moment on that's what I've kept close to my heart was the fact that this woman understood that it's the spirit of authenticity and the love and the respect and the sincerity and the willingness to be wrong and to correct yourself that counts. When you say wrong, what do you mean? Not every gesture I do is perfect. Not every voice I find is perfect. Not every nuance is as nuanced as it is going to be even by the end of the run. And so you can look at what I do and say, oh, she's not doing that character right. They don't really talk like that. That's not exactly accurate. But it's the willingness to try and then listen to someone saying, hey, look, my relatives are from Mississippi and they don't move their hand like that. It's like this. And they show you a new gesture and you say, really? What else do they do? That's what counts is the willingness to just be present and say, hey, I can learn more. How perfect could you ever get playing an individual, and we're all different in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. In 1890s Kansas, does anybody know what perfect would be for that? <laughs> I don't think anybody does. I think we all have our own definitions of perfect. Uh, but you can learn a lot by uh, honoring somebody else's definition of what is right and wrong and sitting at their feet and being humble and not saying, oh, no, 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 I've done way more research than you. <laughs> Did you did you listen to record old recordings um, of people? I mean, we don't have any from the 1890s, but recording technology developed pretty soon after that. So we have voices mm -hmm. uh, from around the country that were made as early as the teens and 20s, at least. Yeah. Um, there's an amazing collection that Folkways recordings of the the progression of African-American music th uh, prior to that era, coming out of Africa with the slaves through that whole era, then into the 1900s and all of its evolutions. So you can have an amazing look back through history at what the sound was doing in those cultures. And for me, that was completely influential because you listen to it and you feel the rhythms. It was so important that uh, we actually dedicated a huge part of this whole project to uh, working with Tammy Brown and some African-American singers. Uh, Brian Dyer also sings with Tammy in the Cultural Heritage Choir, um, directed by Linda Tillery out of San Francisco Bay Area, um, to actually re-record some of the contemporary songs of the era just for the play. So to match them with the scenes, to create the mood, the feeling, to drive the show forward. Hmm. Um. Talking to both of you, Robin and Rivera, about the way in which characters come to life in you when you're performing, or maybe in your case, Rivera, even when you're not performing, um, is there something you have to do as an, as an actor um, to clear a space in yourself that can be occupied by a character? Is there anything you do to make that that place available in yourself. I mean, I, I, I'm imagining that a person who's really full of themselves all the time wouldn't quite have the same experience you've described. I think when you said um, a person who's full of themselves has no room to be someone else, that's exactly accurate. 
And so for me, in my practice of life, I try to empty myself. Empty, let go of attachments. And so there's no specific practice that I do before I start rehearsal, except what I do all the time in my life which is I just try to let go of the concept that I am this and I am not that or I only do this. I is a mutating form all the time. And when you recognize that, that's the space, that's the knowledge that allows you to become the characters. And it can, it can, you can only become a character when in rehearsal, either in rehearsal and performance. You can sit and think about the character, but that's different than being on your feet, speaking the words, moving through the moment that is the character's moment. So yes, you can meditate, you can do yoga, you could shake off your day, you can try not to, you know, you can do whatever it takes to not think about the rest of your life. My experience is that the rehearsal process takes care of that. No matter how peaceful you start a rehearsal or how wild your mind is moving about other things, once you come into the rehearsal process, the concentration can, takes care of itself. It's the moment. It's coming mm -hmm. to that present moment. In the, one of the plays, I won't give it away, a character talks about how it's all just story around us. We have folktales behind us and fairy tales in front of us. That's our past and our future. And we have the true story that's here right now. And even that is open to interpretation. So when you get to that present moment that Robin's talking about, that's where nothing is defined, where the story can change. That's where you become a different character or a different person in your own life. Rehearsal is a way of bringing the focus to your capability to do that. It's also a participation of all participants, directors and other actors, into letting each person in that room change their story in that moment. We don't always, as people in our everyday lives, give each other that permission, which is a shame. I'm not an actor myself, at least. Uh, I haven't been on stage, I think, you know, acting a role since maybe the third grade. So when I hear people describe it, it sounds really hard and uh, it sounds intimidating, like it's a, there's a lot of pressure being in front of people. What's pleasurable about it? I think it's different for every person. What's pleasurable about it for you? Mm-hmm. At this point in my evolution, it's getting to not be there as me, getting to feel the universal perspective that I actually get to see unity consciousness. I get to see what Elijah James is thinking and what Lala's thinking and then flip it. Um, I get to see people from multiple angles because I play all their different friends and families. I get to tell a story through me and move people to tears and to laughter and to open people up. And then at the end of the show to turn it all on its head when they're standing up and clapping for me and saying, oh no, you're clapping for the 20 musicians, the three technicians, for Robin the director, for the, the company team who publicizes this. You're clapping for the radio announcers and the Sentinel printers and the every person in these seats that what you're clapping for is an experience of all of us. That's my favorite moment. <laughs> Robin, in your acting, what, where's the pleasure come in? 
I love not thinking about myself. And so in rehearsal and performance, you don't have to think about yourself, even, you, even though you are bringing your entire self to the situation, you're free of yourself. And I love the audience actor connection. I love the experience of knowing that you're doing something for them. And, um, and then there's also just the mysterious thing of become, being a little girl and knowing that you would love nothing more than to be singing, dancing, and acting. It's inexplicable, really, why we love it so much, but we do. Rivera, I know a little bit about you, and I know that in the, in the years leading up to this performance, your father died, mm-hmm. and then not that long after, your partner Ron Reinberg, who a lot of people in Santa Cruz knew, also died very suddenly. Mm-hmm. Just wondering, did those deaths have any effect on the way this story developed for you and the way this performance has come together? Definitely. Um, both deaths were amazing to witness. Hard to lose someone, always hard to lose someone, but... Sometimes we die in such a way we we give a gift to everyone who's left behind. And both my father and Ron passed in that way. And each one of them, when they passed, broke open the veils of reality that that I usually live in and let me perceive life from a whole new angle. And I've written as much of that into the plays as I can as a way of passing on what I had to learn through grief to people who don't have to learn it through grief. You can sit down and watch a play. And then when you're in that place yourself, because we're all going to lose somebody, it's there inside of you waiting to come back out. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you both. Thank you, thank Robert. Thank you, Robert. Yeah. That was Rivera's son, Cook, and Robin Aronson. Rivera's dramatic trilogy, A Star Called Love, The Freedom Stories of Lala, directed by Robin Aronson, is running now through May 28th at the Pacific Cultural Center in Santa Cruz. And for a complete schedule of performances, you can go to www.clalarun.com. That's www.clalarun.com. Or call 831-421-9160. That's 831-421-9160.